This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Okay, the topic, uh, as you've seen from the flyer, is American Empire and the War Against Evil. Uh, and this reflects, of course, a book which I will also be discussing tomorrow uh, in the dis- uh, discussion group uh, called America, America, the second America being spelled with a triple K, uh, Elect Nation and Imperial Violence. Um, so I'm just kind of taking some key, really the implications of that for the lecture tonight, and then I'll discuss the book in more detail tomorrow. Um, The United States has emerged as the greatest superpower in human history. Its political, economic, military, and cultural power reaches more parts of the entire globe than any previous empire. In September 2001, before the current war in Iraq, The United States military maintained 725 foreign bases in 37 different countries in all parts of the world. There are now, I understand, about 109 bases in Iraq alone, including four very large and apparently permanent ones. The United States military budget exceeds the combined military budgets of the rest of the countries of the world. The Roman Empire, the Chinese Empire, the Islamic Empire at the heights of their power were parochial compared to the global reach of the United States. So the critical question that confronts U.S. Americans and, I think, the people of the rest of the world is how benign or how destructive is this massive American power. The United States has long entertained a sense of itself as unique uh, and divinely chosen. This, of course, is the theme of my book, Elect Nation and Imperial Violence a sense of itself as divinely chosen to be the model for the rest of the world. Our Puritan ancestors, or at least some people's Puritan ancestors, (laughs) not mine, I guess. Our Puritan ancestors, or our... (laughs) uh, In the Massachusetts Bay Colony, spoke of their settlement as a city on a hill called to be the beacon of light for all humanity. 19th century U.S. expansionists claimed that we had a manifest destiny to spread across the continent uh, and then beyond into the Caribbean and the Pacific, exhibiting to the world the superiority of our civic virtue and democratic institutions pushing many people, Indians and Mexicans among others, 
aside in the process. So this ideology of American goodness and greatness, however, has fortunately also been countered by voices of prophetic critique, and this is another theme of the book. There has, in addition to this kind of expansionist view, there has always been this other voice of prophetic critique that pointed out our glaring failures and called us to repentance and to renewed fidelity to the principle of liberty and justice for all as the best of our civic creed. John Winthrop in 1630 warned that we could become cursed rather than blessed if we, quote, played falsely with our God and failed to exemplify the virtues that we pretended to have. Martin Luther King confronted us with the sorry history of slavery and racism and exhorted us to realize the American dream betrayed to our African-American population. Having first emancipated ourselves from the British Empire in the late 18th century, the United States began to follow in the footsteps of that empire in the 19th century. With the Monroe Doctrine, we staked our claims to rival British power in the Americas. After buying up or conquering the French and Mexican territories within the continental United States, we put our feet on the path of empire with the Spanish-American War of 1898. Claiming to intervene as liberators, where have we heard that before? (laughs) Claiming to intervene as liberators, the United States actually blocked and suppressed the independence movements that were well underway in Cuba and the Philippines, substituting our own colonial control for that of the displaced Spanish. Repeated military interventions in the Caribbean and in Central American nations, such as Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, in the first half of the 20th century, showed our determination to prevent any independent path of political or economic development in those areas that we defined as our backyard. In the second half of the 20th century, this interventionism became global, with major wars and coups in Korea and Vietnam, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Chile, and elsewhere wrapped in the flag of anti-communism. The end of the Second World War saw the collapse of the colonial empires of Britain, Holland, France, Portugal, Belgium, as these nations were forced to rebuild national economies that were shattered by the war. But the United States, as the nation whose own national economy had been unscathed and in fact enriched by the war, emerged as defender of the Western capitalist world against the rival communist bloc. And this rivalry was defined not simply as political and economic, but as ideological and even theological. The term godless communism turned this power struggle into a crusade of good against evil, God against godlessness. 
U.S. America defined itself as God's representative to defend a divinely blessed American way of life and to extend it to the rest of the world against its diabolic enemies. Our enemies are always diabolic enemies. <laughs> From the 50s to the 80s, this American hegemonic power was seen, I think, as relatively benign by our European allies and by those elites of the world that benefited from our power. A deeper anti-Americanism surfaced among those who aspired to national liberation from the American-led neocolonialism. But efforts to shake free of this power and to foster alternative paths to development were undermined and defeated by a combination of economic strangulation through the world of financial institutions, embargo by the United States, and either direct or indirect surrogate military intervention. Now all of these methods were brought to bear to destroy the Sandinista Revolution in Nicaragua in the 1980s, crushing a bold experiment in popular education and health, and a mixed democratic socialist model of society, rendering this tiny nation more impoverished than ever. As one American supporter of the revolution put it to me in Managua, quote, they had to destroy the threat of a good example. <laughs> that is to say, the danger that an alternative way of development through democratic socialism might actually work to improve people's lives. Although the Soviet Union was defined as our bet noir, its military power, economic aid, and ideological influence operated to create a certain balance of power in the 60s and 70s. The U.S. developed strategies of multilateral cooperation with our allies and forms of assistance designed to show that the capitalist mode of development was superior to that of socialism, even while doing everything possible to prevent any actual successes of the socialist path. In the late 80s, however, it became evident that the Soviet Union was about to collapse, to break up into its constituent nations. The USSR was exhausted by a $300 billion military budget, that rivaled that of the United States, but constituted a much higher percentage of their GNP in contrast to the United States. So we could no longer hold together an alliance in form of government, especially one that had become distasteful to its own people. But with the collapse of the, United, of the Soviet Union, U.S. hegemonic militarism faced a crisis of legitimacy. Without communism as the enemy, the va this vast military budget and its role as policeman of the world was in danger of losing its rationale. Many Americans began to speak of a peace div dividend. Remember that one? A peace dividend. Anticipating a scaling back of the huge Cold War military budget, perhaps by as much as half. 
they hoped to free large sums of money to rebuild the U.S. infrastructure. Roads, bridges, refunding schools, rethinking matters such as national health insurance. (laughs) And alarmed by such talk, the Pentagon began to cast its eyes across the globe for new enemies. As Colin Powell once said, half-jokingly, I'm running out of enemies. (laughs) He actually said that. (laughs) I'm running out of enemies. Uh, And so the Pentagon came to define a military strategy as one that would be capable of fighting two wars at once. And you found a kind of lumping together of remaining pockets of communism with militant Muslim nations as the enemies. As a precursor to George W. Bush's axis of evil, it listed Cuba, North Korea, Libya, Iraq, and Iran as the evil enemies we must be prepared to fight. (laughs) Also, there developed a new alliance of the Christian right with its wars against gays, feminists, and reproductive rights, with national security and free trade neoconservatives that promoted American military and economic supremacy. This had emerged in the Reagan years. It uh, was perhaps uh, somewhat in retreat uh, with the victory of Bill Clinton in the 1990s, who sought to capture a middle ground of American politics that, that included a moderate concern for social welfare at home and humanitarian international alliances abroad. But the weakness of this centrist vision, as well as his personal peccadilloes, laid the ground for a new victory of the Christian fundamentalist National Security State Alliance with the non-election of George W. Bush in 2000. Now, this alliance of neoconservatives and the Christian right would sweep Bush to victory in the 2004 election again, uh, and also, at that time, some unanswered questions about the rigging of voting machines in key states such as Ohio. The hard-right ideologues of the Bush team, Richard Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz, these had already laid the ideological ground in the mid-90s for a different vision of the American future. With no international rival for hegemonic power, they believed the way was clear for the United States to seize control of the whole world. Eliminating not only actual rivals, but any potential rivals to American power. This new imperial dream would demand not a scaling down, but a vast increase of the American military budget, dwarfing the military budgets of the rest of the nations of the world. America was to have absolute military predominance both to intervene militarily in any nation that threatened the United States before any actual attack had been mounted, and also to defend itself against any missiles 
that might be directed at our national territory. But the authors of this strategy of American imperial expansion feared that Americans lacked the will for such adventures. In a 2000 um, year document on the new American century, the authors opined that we needed, quote, a new Pearl Harbor. That is to say, an attack by some outside force that would generate a paroxysm of fear and hatred and thus create the national will for such military expansion, a prediction that would come eerily true on September 11th of 2001. Now, several critics, including my colleague, Claremont School of Theology process theologian David Ray Griffin, in his 2004 book, The New Pearl Harbor, troubling questions about the Bush administration and 9-11, has accumulated a large amount of evidence to support his thesis uh, that the Bush administration had considerable advanced information on the coming attack on September 11th and decided to either allow it or facilitate it happening in order to create the desired crisis. The major media has chosen to ignore these findings, treating them as an unsubstantiated, quote, conspiracy theory. But careful examination of the data gathered by Griffin is impressive, and I invite you to actually read (laughs) his books. because there's a great deal of very specific knowledge. Uh, I mean, he shows that there was a lot of very specific knowledge about the planned attack that was actually known six weeks before the attack, Uh, and also considerable evidence of continued cover-up and denial of information during the subsequent investigation. Here's another book about that. Now, it's not clear to me whether all of this actually points to some level of U.S. government complicity in the attacks themselves. Part of my problem is I have a hard time imagining the Bush administration being organized enough to to pull off such a vast conspiracy and not have various people ratting on them. Um, So I'm not, you know... I still have a sort of questions about his thesis, but what to me is unquestionable is that the attacks themselves were immediately seized upon by the Bush administration to leap forward in the plans for global domination. Leaders of the administration, such as Donald Rumsfeld and Condoleezza Rice, reveal their mentality when they refer frequently to these attacks as an opportunity to remake the world. And we know now that demands to invade Iraq were actually made some five years before 9-11. And these were activated literally within the day after the attack, despite any uh, evidence of involvement by Saddam Hussein. And in fact, it was only with difficulty that these war proponents were persuaded to pursue the attack on Afghanistan first and then build the case for Iraq. But there is no doubt that the Bush administration continues to profit 
or has continued to profit enormously by cloaking imperialist aggression in the guise of a war on, quote, terrorism on behalf of American security. Now, in the 1990s, these plans for a greatly expanded American empire were impeded by new sort of, not exactly isolationism, but efforts to withdraw from international engagement. There was a whole conservative realist movement that believed that absolute uh, military predominance really would allow Americans to withdraw from any kind of real concern for multilateral alliances, which we didn't need to get involved in trying to curb civil wars abroad or heal diseases, much less prevent environmental degradation. All of this could be discarded as not serving our national interests. And in his 2000 uh, year campaign for the presidency, George W. Bush himself disparaged U.S. involvement in, quote, nation building and pledged to withdraw from such engagements. There was a concerted attack on, quote, big government, both federal government projects, uh, the nationalized funding and and, uh, standards of social welfare, and also, of course, hostility to the United Nations as a potential, quote, world government that might challenge or uh, or lessen absolute American sovereignty. Any exercise of international law against violations of human rights that might possibly be applied to U.S. personnel or its allies, such as Israel's Sharon or Chile's Pinochet, was seen as an affront to our national autonomy. When George W. Bush came to power in 2000, he quickly showed his alignment with the neoconservative view of unilateral and militarist American power. In rapid succession, he curbed U.S. contributions to international family planning. It's interesting that this has been on the agenda curbed contributions to international family planning. He rejected American participation in the Kyoto Climate Treaty, dismantled international arms control treaties, and rejected the jurisdiction of the World Court for any crimes that might involve the United States. So you had this policy direction, but this already happening, but this policy direction gained a new rationale with the terrorist attacks on the two major symbols of American political, or military rather, and economic power, namely the Pentagon and the World Trade Center, on September 11th of 2001. So 9-11 gave the Bush administration a new global enemy, a new global enemy that it needed in order to justify its global imperial strategy. Terrorism became the new incarnation of evil. And the fight against terrorism was defined not as a collaborative effort to defend all victimized people against non-state violence, but rather as a world war 
a world war to be basically without end, uh, to be fought with the armaments of the most advanced American military technology, including nuclear weapons. So kind of like trying to nuke a cockroach, you know. It's it's sort of inappropriate (laughs) technology. Um, And this was to be directed not primarily against these small enclaves of terrorists, but against, quote, the nations that harbored them. As I just suggested, such armaments of an all-out war that were really designed to combat other nation states are completely ineffective as a tool for, quote, catching terrorists who are by definition stateless, who slip across borders and before the invasion of Iraq were more likely to gather in northern Germany and London than in Baghdad. Indeed, as the July 2005 bombings in London have shown, there's a whole new generation of homegrown terrorists who grew up in places like Leeds, England, and learned their ideas and skills on the internet. (laughs) After almost six years of the, quote, war against terrorism, there is little evidence that these groups have been diminished. On the contrary, especially with the occupation and resulting chaos in Iraq, it's clear that we have, in fact, been creating the the incitement for new recruits all over the world. Designating its global imperial strategy as a war against terrorism assured the Bush regime both bipartisan consensus and popular support for a considerable period of time. How much that has been eroded uh, might be discussed. Um, And of course, a lot of that was based on then denouncing any critics of these policies as incipient traitors and collaborators with terrorists. With such a war against terrorism projected as virtually endless, the far-right ideologues sought to make their power permanent and irreversible in the United States and across the world. And so it's no surprise that having pushed over the Taliban regime uh, that supported al-Qaeda in Afghanistan without, of course, apprehending its leaders, the Bush administration quickly set its sights on what had already been defined as its larger goal, namely Iraq. Now, Iraq, it seems to me, was the major target for U.S. supremacists for a couple of reasons. One clearly was its vast supplies of oil, and also because it represented unfinished business from the Gulf War of 1990 of U.S. dominance over the Middle East. Iraq represented a challenge to the imperial hegemony of the United States and its client state, Israel, over the Middle East. Although his fabled, quote, weapons of mass destruction, you always come. So that's one word, you know, weapons of mass destruction, uh, as we now know, didn't actually exist at the time of the invasion of Iraq, Saddam Hussein represented an obstacle to U.S. and Israeli dominance of the Middle East. Iraq was, of course, actually deeply weakened and impoverished. 
under the international sanctions of the 1990s. But Hussein continued to thumb his nose at American demands for control and to to smash his remaining power and reshape this nation to our imperial demands became a major uh, interest of both ideological and military economic U.S. supremacists. Although it seems to me the conquest of Iraq itself was a relative pushover. I think the military knew that. Uh, And the hunt for its fugitive leader finally netted him from an underground hole some eight months later. Iraq today shows little evidence of becoming the showplace of American benevolence that we promised. Basic services of electricity, water, gas, phone services still fails to be adequately restored, even in the capital city, much less the rest of the country. The occupying American army, with its endless searches for dissidents, house-to-house searches that invariably kill and injure innocent people, passerbys, and so on, usually much more than any actual activists, Uh, bombing raids that destroy whole cities. It seems to me all these tactics uh, inevitably show themselves more adept at hardening the anger and hostility of ordinary Rockies at our continued presence. But the occupation, of course, has also become a big bonanza for big government contractors, such as Halliburton, its uh, subsidiary uh, Kellogg, Root, and uh, Brown and Root, all of whom have literally wasted billions of dollars, much of it Iraqi money, earmarked for reconstruction in schemes of private corporate enrichment. All of this, of course, has been said many times. But Now, the Bush administration's war plans, I think, did not intend to end with Iraq. Neocon documents from the late 90s reveal um, that those who were his key advisors had their eyes on the domination of the whole Middle East, moving from Iraq to Iran and perhaps even Syria. As veteran journalist Seymour Hirsch revealed in his August 21st, 2006 New Yorker article, watching Lebanon, Israel and the United States planned an attack on Lebanon well before uh, the Hezbollah captured some Israeli soldiers, seeing it as a warm-up for the attack on Iran. Now, in the last year of Bush's presidency, he seems to have turned belatedly to diplomacy. Uh, With some gestures towards settling the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I happened to be in Israel-Palestine when he was over there. Um, And he mainly shut down Bethlehem and Ramallah. Nobody could go out of their house while he was in the city. So he did not make a very good impression on the Palestinians. But anyway... um, But there has been now these gestures toward trying to do something about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I think totally inadequate. Uh, But the desire to keep up some kind of hostile pressure on Iran keeps returning to his rhetoric. 
both the lack of interest in the, uh, of the European and Arab allied nations in any kind of war of this kind, as well as, I think, the unwillingness of the U.S. military to venture another conflict, overstretched as they are with the present two wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which continue to drag on without resolution, <clears throat> I think all of this has doubtless helped to cool down some of the war plans against Iran for the moment. Now, the designs of world hegemonic power that underlie this crusade against Iraq, and this is a major point I want to make in this lecture, these, these kinds of designs of world hegemonic power were always clothed in a kind of vestments of absolute moral righteousness, both by Bush himself and his advisors. Saddam Hussein was depicted, of course, as the diabolic plotter that threatened the national security of the United States and the whole world, even though his military budget was a pittance compared with the United States in 2001. His military budget at that time was one point billion compared to our budget of 500 billion. <clears throat> um, but nevertheless, his weapons were depicted as though they were somehow th um, threatening to overwhelm the United States. Of course, his evil treatment of his own people and that of his neighbors were, were very much worthy of criticism. <clears throat> but the rhetoric used to denounce these evils generally concealed the fact that many of these crimes were committed while he was an ally of the United States and with the connivance of these very critics who would later attack him. For example, in the 1980s, Donald Rumsfeld was shaking Saddam Hussein's hand and promising him our everlasting support. And then in the 1990s, we decided to depose him, and then he became a global devil. The plans for a war against Iraq were depicted again and again as sort of one more episode <clears throat> In an apocalyptic drama of good against evil, the angels of light against the forces of darkness, America's chosen people against God's enemies. Juan Stam, who is a Puerto Rican pastor and theologian, has analyzed George Bush's religious rhetoric and found that it weaves together two types of language. One of these is the language of apocalyptic warfare, that is to say, the war of good against evil, which absolutizes the U.S. as good against our enemies as the epitome of evil. <clears throat> the second language is messianism. American general and George Bush in particular depicted as messianic agents of God in combating evil and establishing good throughout the world. And this language was exemplified in speeches made by a certain General William Boykin. Anybody remember him? William Boykin, a conservative Christian charged with the hunt against Osama bin Laden. In speeches to his religious constituency, Boykin declared that America is an object of hate by other nations because we are uniquely a Christian nation. <clears throat> and he went on to claim that, quote, our spiritual enemy that can only be conquered 
when we confront them in the name of God. Muslims, by contrast, uh, he believed actually worship an idol and not the true God. Boykin then opined that God had put George Bush in the White House at this time. We are, this is again a direct quote, we are an army of God raised up for such a time as this. In effect, George Bush is God's elect Messiah, put in power to head the apocalyptic warfare of God's angels against demonic powers of the last day. This language, I think, is also found in a kind of oddly secular version in neoconservative writers such as Richard Pearl and David Fromm. For example, their 2003 book is subtitled How to Win the War Against Terrorism. The main title is, is um, The End of Evil. So you have this book, The End of Evil, <laughs> How to Win the War Against Terrorism. Uh, in her recently released uh, new Pentagon Papers, former military intelligence officer Kara Kiewkowski reveals an atmosphere, as she, as she experienced this herself, an atmosphere of extreme fanaticism that took over the Pentagon policy intelligence, suppressing accurate information about the Middle East. And she writes, and I quote, I saw a dead philosophy, Cold War anti-communism and neo-imperialism walking the corridors of the Pentagon. It wore the clothing of counterterrorism and spoke the language of holy war between good and evil. The evil was recognized by the leadership to be resident mainly in the Middle East and articulated by Islamic clerics and radicals, but there were other enemies within, within the United States, that is to say anyone who dared to voice any skepticism about their grand plans, unquote. Now I would suggest that the Bush administration actually alters between two different rhetorics perhaps designed to appeal to different audiences. One is the religious rhetoric of apocalyptic messianism, designed to appeal to the religious right supporters of the regime. And the other is a co-optation of liberal progressive language that speaks of America uh, invading Afghanistan and then Iraq to, quote, liberate their people from oppressive tyrants, bringing them freedom, democracy, and, of course, the American way of life, namely the free market. So for Americans affronted by the first rhetoric, it is hoped they would be reassured that our true intentions are expressed in the second kind of rhetoric. Now what we have here is a fallacious but long-standing ploy in American political language, namely the equation of political freedom with the neoliberal ideology and practices of the, quote, free market. That somehow freedom equals the free market. But I would put it to you that the free market has nothing to do with social and political freedom and flourishes quite well in the dictatorships of the left and the right because basically what neoliberals mean by the free market is the right of mega corporations to batter down any restrictions on their right to monopolize the markets of the world, preventing small nations from protecting their national production, 
or from subsidizing health care, education, and basic commodities for the poor classes. I mean, this is what you're going to dismantle, is these kinds of protections of one small nation's markets and some kind of subsidized health and welfare. <clears throat> what our presence in Iraq means economically is a wholesale sellout of Iraqi resources to favorite American corporations such as Halliburton. And this is veiled behind arguments that claim that such corporations are simply the best and most efficient to, quote, do the job of rebuilding Iraq, although the exact nature of such rebuilding is yet to become clear. So far, it seems to have very little to do with making daily life more livable for Iraqis. So, in conclusion... Um, what are we to say about the emergence of America as a superpower in the first decade of the 21st century? Is it a force primarily for human good, or is it a terribly and tragically mixed reality? It is my belief that the direction charted by the present administration to direct American power toward global empire has become a disaster, both for the world and for the American people ourselves. It means dismantling many of the fragile structures of international cooperation designed to curb militarism and foster social welfare, environmental health, and peace. It has also further inflamed hatred in general and against the United States in particular, particularly in the Islamic world, but also much of the third world and also has antagonized many in Europe who have come to see the United States as a kind of rogue nation. In a poll taken by, uh, uh, in the European Economic Union uh, nations in December of 2003, Europeans declared that Israel and the United States were the primary threats to world peace, in their opinion. Now, it seems to me this imperial agenda is also further distorting the U.S. economy, <clears throat> delaying any reinvestment in needed infrastructure, education, health, social welfare. <clears throat> We've just, of course, heard a big slashing of California's budget for education, and at the same time, we voted that American Indian casinos could help us pay our bills. So <clears throat> that tells you something. Uh, it seems to me that the whole world and the United States uh, itself are being impoverished, both morally and economically, by a wrong-headed drive for imperial power. Chalmers Johnson, author of three books, Critiquing American Imperialism, I don't know if he's spoken on this campus. Uh, he's, he's in this area, I believe. Uh, his most recent book is called Nemesis, The Last Days of the American Republic, published in 2006. He recently gave a lecture at Pitzer College in Claremont uh, in a lecture that was entitled, quote, How to End the American Empire Before It Ends Us. Uh, and he sees the recent military imperial adventure as already leading to the denouement 
uh, of American global power, but also our democratic traditions. Now, as a theologian, I believe that this imperial adventure has to be questioned also on the level of its claims to an idolatrous moral absolutism. That is to say, for its claims to represent good against evil, God against the devil, resisting any self-critique of its own power. Not only critics from the Muslim and Third World, but also our European allies, it seems to me, are deeply offended, <clears throat> actually just astonished in many cases, uh, by this rhetoric uh, and justification of American power. And it seems to me the Christian churches have a responsibility to challenge the misuse of religious language for imperial power. To posit the United States as the representative of absolute moral righteousness against absolute evil violates the most basic principles of Christian theology, which understand that all human beings are flawed and that all are in need of divine grace and self-critical repentance. To speak of any nation and its leader as messianic is the very opposite of Christian faith in Jesus Christ as crucified Lord who unmasks the power of empire and stands with the poor of the world. Christian churches and theologians, in allowing Christianity to be used by neoconservatives for their imperial plans, have failed to do their theological work. Their theological work in protecting an authentic vision of Christian faith and challenging its counterfeits. Ideally, Christian churches should make such critiques of the misuse of religious language in concert with colleagues from other religious traditions who also have a stake in questioning the abuse of religion. This language not only falsifies Christianity, but it also seeks to split Christians and Jews from Muslims. Muslims, of course, being set up as the democratic, uh, diabolic, excuse me, the diabolic adversaries of this messianic crusade. Christian Jews and Muslims need to stand together to make clear that the word Allah is the word for God (laughs) in the Arabic language, which is used and shared by all Arabic-speaking people, Christian Jews and Muslims. The three people of the Abrahamic faith share a common understanding of the same God. And so if there is an idol to be denounced, it is the idolatrous appropriation of language for God into the sacralization of oppressive military and economic power. So Christians and people of all faith and goodwill need to stand together to unmask this kind of abuse of religion, but I think also to unmask the misuse of liberal and liberation language about freedom, democracy, and liberation. The use of this kind of language about democracy to cover up what is basically a blatant invasion and occupation of other countries in order to control their economic resources as well as to repress critics at home. 
The basic religious and ethical stances of the Abrahamic faith, shared by Jews, Christians, and Muslims, is to stand with the oppressed and the impoverished peoples of the world against every empire. And the American emperor, no less than the Roman Empire, needs to be challenged by a religious vision that calls for, quote, good news to the poor, the liberation of the captive, and the setting at liberty of those who are oppressed. Everybody know where that came from? (laughs) Finally, and most basically, the American people themselves, or ourselves, need to challenge a domestic and foreign policy that guts our own traditions of democracy, human rights, and prophetic self-critique. We need a new generation of prophets to arise to denounce the misuse of American might for blatant power-mongering and self-enrichment of the super-rich. And even more, we need new prophets who will redefine how America can and must become one nation among others in a world community which together must seek just, sustainable, and peaceful earth. Thank you very much. (laughs) In summary, if I uh, may try, uh, that these neocons are about to be out of power and then we can all breathe a sigh of relief. You know, the nightmare is over. Um, or whether uh, this has become much more permanent. I, uh, in the, the, my book, uh, Elect Nation Imperial Violence, I try to show that there, there's much deeper roots to this imperial drive. You know, it, it gets going um, with Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> Uh, and uh, it's been building for some time. It's, of course, it was deeply constructed through the Cold War. So I think uh, there, there are some... It's going to be very hard for, for a new administration uh, uh, whether it's Billary or... Um, excuse me, Hillary. Uh, <laughs> just showed my bias there. Uh, or Obama, who I, uh, but it's going to be very hard for them to do a, a, a deeper reconstruction. And I don't think that, that our present campaign has even touched these issues. In other words, we're not grappling in our language of the campaign with these deeper issues at all. Uh, we're, and of course, now we're, so much of it is just kind of trading little insults and stuff. So uh, it's, it's going to be very difficult to, to even, you know, critique the, these deeper patterns, much less imagine some changes. So I, th- I think there's, um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm happy there'll be, there'll be hopefully there'll be some change, but I, th- I think there's some deeper patterns that we need to struggle with. Uh, in terms of the, I mean, one issue, for example, is is the whole privatization of the military, the privatization of the military, and the way so much of the functions of the military are now really in the hands of these kind of private mercenaries who are making uh, um, huge profits by that, and 
I, I just don't think these deeper patterns are even being discussed on a very uh, um, significant level, except in very small circles. Uh, so the question is uh, the revolving door <coughs> between military and government. Um, you know, when, when Eisenhower uh, denounced it in this famous speech uh, the uh, military-industrial complex, he actually, in his actual speech, he had the military-industrial-congressional complex. He was persuaded to drop the word congressional. <laughs> so I think that there's been elements uh, of that um, that are that are going on for some time. Um, yeah, we really need to change the consciousness of war, and and uh, and that these the present candidates uh, really can't speak on this without being denounced as traitors. Uh, so I th I think a lot of uh, I think that's l largely true. Um, that that both both are dominant media, uh, and the whole the whole way in which uh, <coughs> government and media and so on have have shaped a sort of parameters of what is acceptable discourse. Um, for example, um, Barack Obama actually and and actually also um, Hillary Clinton knows have know something about the Israeli-Palestine plight. Uh, Hillary Clinton went to Gaza with her in the previous administration. Of course, as soon as she started running for be senator of New York, she came out immediately for the, the, uh, the moving of the American embassy from Tel Aviv to, to Jerusalem. So she completely sold out any critique. Obama, uh, I was told in the, when I was in Israel is that um, when American congressmen come to Israel, they have the possibility of going to the Palestinian-occupied territories. Very few of them ever do that. And no one has ever gone to Gaza except one, Barack Obama. <clears throat> he also, uh, I discovered... Uh, knows quite well the, the Arab and Palestinian community in Chicago and um, was a speeches by Edward Said. I don't know if people know who that is. But the point is that Obama is, is fairly well educated on these issues. He doesn't say a mumbling word, zero. Uh, so I, I think uh, we're all being really sold out by the fact that, that that we have this incredibly narrow parameters of what can even be discussed. Um, and that there's a whole, all of these issues which are simply off the table. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a mixed record. Uh, I, I, I need to repeat the question. The mainstream church is going along with the vilification of Muslims. I think that that, that has been true of, well, most notably of certain kinds of ultra-conservative, more fundamentalist Christians. I mean, you, you have a very specific rhetoric of demonization of Islam. On the other hand, there, there has been, uh, and, and it started actually with 9-11, uh, a whole movement of outreach to, to the local Muslim communities on the part of Christian churches. I know in Claremont, 
a whole group of Christians were organized to, to protect the school children at a local Muslim school who were, who were being harassed and so on. So there, and uh, and uh, in many cases, uh, the Islamic community really moved uh, into coalition with peace and justice groups. For example, again, in the Pomona Valley, it's a local imam actually heads the ecumenical um, peace and justice uh, group. Um, and uh, there, of course, there's also been an enormous push to have Muslim scholars in departments of religion every place. So I think that this is a kind of mixed bag, that you have uh, these conservative Christians who often make the biggest impression, making these kinds of uh, demonizing statements, but you have a lot of activity trying to counter that on the other side. And I think we probably that alternative needs to be known more. Uh, and, and obviously developed more as well. I think we are supposed to cut it off. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.